You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, premium episode number four. This episode is episode number two of our reevaluation of the British cavalry during the war. Last episode, we discussed the roots of some of the changes in the British cavalry, which began around the 1870s, after the influence of the Franco-Prussian and American Civil Wars. This episode, we will carry our narrative forward by looking at the experiences of the British during the Second Boer War. This war, unlike almost every other British colonial conflict, would be a long and hard-fought affair that would showcase some of the definitive shortcomings of the British armed forces. The fallout of the conflict would have wide-ranging effects on the British army and cavalry doctrine on the path towards the First World War. Coming out of the war, the argument over the future of cavalry would continue, with most of the contention swirling around the commander-in-chief, Roberts, who would be one of the primary critics of the cavalry after his experiences during the Boer War. Before we get too much into the fallout, though, let's begin by discussing the events of the Second Boer War. In his book, From Boer War to World War, Tactical Reforms of the British Army, 1902 to 1914, Spencer Jones would say, quote, In the 12 years between the end of the Boer War and the outbreak of the First World War, the army underwent vast and important organizational and tactical reforms, end quote. The war represented really the first time in a very long time that the British did not just roll over the enemy during a colonial conflict. In fact, between 1857 and 1899, the British army had suffered over a hundred casualties in a single action only twice. They were very one-sided affairs, to say the least. This meant that when the Second Boer War started, and then continued for quite some time, it came as a huge shock to the British army and to the British society as a whole. It also caused more questions to be asked than if the war had just been another steamroll, or even if the war had went pretty well but the cavalry had performed poorly. It was only in the complete failure of the British army to quickly handle the Boers that the amount of conversation could have that the amount of conversation that happened could have been generated. One thing I want to point out here is that these reactions, questions, and changes went well beyond just the scope of the cavalry, even though that is all that we're going to focus on today. The book by Spencer Jones that I just mentioned, in fact, has larger sections on the changes in the infantry and artillery than on the cavalry, but those discussions will be held until a later episode. One big benefit that you will see here pretty soon is that the British actually did a pretty good job of adapting to the situation in the theater during the war. The problems would lie afterwards, when an attempt was made to reconcile and standardize all of those small and large changes that had been made by commanders during the war. 
Before we get to the chronicle of the events, let's first talk about the people that the British were fighting, the Boers. The Boer army was not an army in the traditional European sense, where there was a large number of professional soldiers or an even larger number of conscripts. Instead, the Boers were loosely organized groups that could elect their own leaders. This election had the pleasant side effect of getting some really good leaders into places high up in the chain of command as the war went on. The Boer soldiers were also entirely mounted on small ponies that were used for everything in their region. Usually each man would have two or three of these ponies, often they were their personal mounts. This resulted in a situation where they knew their animals and the ponies were well acclimated to the environment, which was very important, as will soon become apparent. They were also small, which meant that they needed less fodder per animal when compared to the horses that the British would use. At a tactical level, the Boers would often fight dismounted using rifles that they carried with them. They did not have any tactics that involved the mounted cavalry charge. In fact, they carried no swords or lances of anything like that that they could use, maybe like a a hunting knife, I don't know. Generally, they were only armed with rifles and sometimes revolvers. At a strategic level, they almost always refused any kind of pitched battle, and said they fought more of a guerrilla war. There were battles and skirmishes early on, during the more conventional phase of the war, but these were generally small affairs with a few hundred men. After the relief of Kimberley, the war would devolve into a true guerrilla war, which the Boers were fantastic at executing. Often the Boer units would even abandon geographical positions that the British would have put everything to try and hold on to, like their capital or other cities. The British thought that these tactics represented cowardice, but the Boers just thought that it was smart to not put themselves in a position where their enemy had a clear advantage. The only way that the British could find to fight this type of war was to try and match the Boer mobility with mobility of their own, and so huge numbers of mounted troops were brought in and deployed during the war. And obviously, there weren't enough traditional cavalry to fulfill this role, so there came to be a large number of mounted infantry. And this would represent the best experiment for figuring out if mounted infantry could truly replace the more traditional cavalry troopers. Last episode, we talked quite a bit about the early evolution of the mounted infantry concept, and they would be deployed in large numbers during the Boer War. The belief was that the mounted infantry would be valuable for their mobility in scouting and screening, while at the same time be able to fight as dismounted infantry when it was appropriate. Some mounted infantry units were brought in from Britain, but others would be created during the war and on the spot in South Africa. You see a lot more of these kind of in-country unit creations once General Roberts took command of the British forces after the events of Black Week. To create these units, he ordered each battalion of infantry to produce one company of mounted infantry. These men were then sent to be trained up for all of about a week in their new role, and then sent to the front. This created a situation where the men were not good horsemen due strictly to lack of training and experience. It was small things that they would end up getting wrong, like not taking every possible opportunity to unsaddle their horses, or not leading their horses instead of always riding them, or not letting their horses graze on any available grass at every available opportunity. All of these things were critical when supplies of fodder were scarce and the horses were being pushed to the maximum. The mounted infantry always had a lot of things stacked against them, and one of them was simply their ad hoc nature. 
The men were detached from their normal units, but were at times reintegrated with those units only to then be pulled back out. It, it just made the whole thing very confusing. They also just were not very good at one of their primary purposes, scouting and reconnaissance. With Haig later putting it simply that, quote, few ever became good enough riders to, fit f- to be fit for scouting work, end quote. Because they were not very good at what they were doing, it is almost necessary to question the overall wisdom of creating so many mounted infantry units early in the war, before the guerrilla portion of the conflict really got started. If the British were having a hard enough time supplying the mounted troops that they did have, the one thing they did not need was more horses to feed that were not being optimally used. Or at least that would have been an argument that you could have made if the cavalry was doing a good job at reconnaissance, which is what the mounted infantry were sort of created for, but they weren't. Reconnaissance was an extremely important role that had to be filled in the wide-open spaces of the Boer War. Spencer again here, quote, Although the arguments over the relative merits of firepower as opposed to the armed blanche dominated much of cavalry reform debate, the Boer War had also demonstrated the difficulty and the critical importance of effective reconnaissance on the modern battlefield. End quote. Part of the problem was just an overall lack of training in reconnaissance work and even long-standing cavalry units. In 1895, the cavalry spent just three or four days per year practicing reconnaissance work. That is sort of understandable. I don't think many people would call reconnaissance work glamorous. But this lack of training became even more critical as technology advanced, and inventions like smokeless powder and the longer engagement ranges of firearms made it more difficult, and also more important, to observe enemy formations earlier. During the Boer War specifically, the lack of cover on the plains of South Africa and the problem of keeping the horses supplied just made the entire process more difficult. I think there was an assumption both at the time and even now as we look back to judge that all soldiers have eyes, so they should naturally be able to do reconnaissance, right? It's just looking, seeing, and reporting. This mindset is an easy one to slip into, but it does a huge disservice to how difficult reconnaissance can be. During the disastrous week of December 15, 1899, which would come to be called Black Week, Most of the problems can be directly related to the British Army not having the units that could perform proper reconnaissance. Both during the war and after the war, there was a huge call to completely reform the reconnaissance training of the cavalry, and this was done with an increased emphasis on map reading and observation techniques being at the top of the training curriculum. The reform of this arm, while it does not get as much publicity, was critical. We honestly probably won't discuss it again, but it's one of those small changes from the Boer War that would have an effect on the First World War, especially in the opening campaign. While reconnaissance was a problem for the British, another problem was simply keeping their horses alive, and I'm being literal here. It was a constant point of concern. During the early fighting, there were at least a few instances where the British cavalry were able to ride down the enemy especially right at the beginning, when facing some of the few infantry formations in the Transvaal army. Over time, though, the horses got worn down, so much so that it was no longer an option to just ride down the enemy. There was a serious attempt at supplying the number of horses that were constantly needed in South Africa, but the remount department, who was in charge of these activities, found themselves strained to the breaking point. 
It did not help that before the war, the remount department was seen as a great place to send ineffective officers that, for whatever reason, could not be straight up sacked. It probably would not have made a huge difference, even if the most effective set of officers in the world were at the remount department, though, for a few reasons. First, even when there were enough horses to go around, they were of generally poor quality. Second, even when good horses were available, they were not of the optimal type for the region. Instead of the smaller horses like the Boers had, ones that were suitable to the environment, they were the larger horses that were favored by many armies in more moderate climates like Europe. Third, and this seems to be the most important, the horses were not given the proper time to acclimate to the local climates. The veterinary services of the British Army believed that it would take at least nine weeks after arrival for horses to properly acclimate to the environment when arriving in South Africa. This was due to many reasons, like the differences in climate and the interesting makeup of the local varieties of grass that was for grazing. Most of the leading British cavalry officers believed that the horses needed only three weeks, but oftentimes the horses were not given even close to this much. It was not unheard of for horses to be moved out to the front just a week after they got off the boats, and this did the horses absolutely no favors. When they did eventually get to the front, they were often not given enough food, with just 8 pounds of oats per day becoming the standard ration, the same amount as the smaller Boer ponies were getting. 8 pounds of oats for the British horses was almost starvation rations, even if they were consistently available, and they would not be. Of the 500,000 horses that were used by the British Army during the war, almost 350,000 would be expended and die during the fighting. This is a bit over two-thirds. Even those that did not die would be so greatly compromised that they would be almost worthless, as we will soon discuss. I like this quote from Stephen Badsey. Quote, the cavalry's success in solving the armed blanche problem and understanding the relation between sword and carbine had caused the army to ignore the fact, attested to by the commanders in war and in official documents, that the overburdened, starving, unfit horse carrying a poor horsemaster was useless in war, no matter what weapon the rider carried. End quote. This episode will not contain a full story of the Second Boer War. That would be multiple episodes just by itself. We will instead focus on the most important campaign as it relates to cavalry during the war, and this campaign was the relief of the siege of Kimberley and its aftermath. The plan to relieve the siege was to send out a cavalry division under the command of General French, and the campaign would receive a huge amount of attention and analysis after the war. French was told by Generals Roberts and Kitchener that even if half of French's men died, that it would be worth it if they got to Kimberley and relieved the siege. The force would set out on February the 11th, and then they carried just five days of forage with them when they set out. This was important because it gave them essentially no margin for error when it came to getting to Kimberley and then re-establishing their connection to the supply train of the army. During the first three days of the advance, 460 horses died or had to be dropped out of the line. The policy of the cavalry at the time was that if a horse collapsed, it was shot, rather than being left to possibly die. This has a slight humanitarian feel. Leaving a horse to die a long and slow death is a horrible act. However, it also meant that horses that could have been saved or could have recovered if given some time to rest were instead killed. 
This also meant that at times, especially when the horses were carrying extra fodder collapsed, that the fodder might have to be left behind if it could not be redistributed. This was, of course, only a problem right at the beginning, because the problem of having too much fodder was not going to be a problem very, very soon. On February the 15th, just four days after setting out, the cavalry came under fire from 800 Boers and a few pieces of artillery. It was imperative for French and his forces that he not let the Boers slow him down, given the fodder situation. He therefore made a very quick decision, and a very bold decision. He sent out scouts to clear any fences, and then led a charge of every single man under his command through the Boer line. The charge was led by two squadrons of lancers at the front, and then everybody else coming up behind them. They charged forward and spent four minutes under fire from the Boer soldiers and artillery pieces. By the theoretical calculations from before the war, that, inclu- that included the fire rate and the probability to hit from the rifles that the Boers had, in their very competent hands, by the way, even if just one out of every five rounds fired hit a target, every single one of the British soldiers should have been dead well before they reached the Boer lines. As it was, they suffered precisely four men wounded and two horses killed. Again, that was precisely four wounded, and not a single man killed. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During the course of the war, this would be the best example of the classic cavalry charge for the British, while their horses were still fresh enough to make it happen, and it went perfectly. The British had taken the time to prepare the area for the charge, so there weren't any fences anywhere. They had evaluated the Boer troops, and they found that they were too spread out to properly stop them, and then when they charged home, they went straight through the Boer lines. It was a textbook example of what a cavalry charge could and should look like. All of the critics would have found the results to be a bit surprising. What they could not have known is that their theoretical models on which so much of their criticism of the cavalry was based had grossly overestimated the actual hit rate of the firing from the enemy. They did not properly consider the factors like dust, covering fire, and probably most importantly, the psychological effects of having hundreds of men charging down on you on horses. It was scared the bejeebus out of me. I'm instantly reminded of a scene from Lord of the Rings, from the movies that is, where the riders of Rohan charge down on the orc armies in front of Minas Tirith. There is a very specific moment when the orcs realize that their arrows are not going to stop them and the riders are going to hit them full on. They all look around with a, what do we do now, look, right before the riders hit them. Probably not unlike what happened to the Boer troopers at that similar moment. And yes, I really, really like Lord of the Rings, and if I'm not careful, I could talk about it for hours, so I should probably stop and get back to where I was. Okay, I'm focusing on this one action so much in this episode because it, and the other cavalry actions that were soon to follow, would be the primary point of study after the war, 
Much would be made by the cavalry reformers of this charge and how it showed that a unit of cavalry, properly trained in the use of the lance and the sword, could still be very useful, even when confronted with modern rifles and artillery. Once French and his men went through the Boer lines, they found their way to Kimberley, and they arrived there just a few days later. When they relieved the siege, though, their horses were in a very poor state. They had received no supply for four days, because the supply column protected by Roberts' infantry had been successfully raided by the Boers. It would not be until February the 23rd, 12 days after setting out, that normal rations would be restored to the horses, by which point almost the entire cavalry division was considered combat ineffective. For the rest of the campaign, and in their analysis after the war, there would be a lot of blame flung around between French and Roberts about who was to blame for this fact that the horses were so horrible. Roberts would blame the horse mastership of the cavalry, while the cavalry would blame Roberts' inability to supply them with proper amounts of fodder. Regardless of whose fault it was, and even though they were still in no state for further action, the cavalry would leave Kimberley with the rest of the army on February the 28th, and a week later they would face a force of 6,000 Boers. What had started as 3,500 horses was now down to 2,800 after just a week, and they were now ordered to get around behind the Boers to cut off their retreat while the British infantry moved forward. Even though their horses could barely get up to a trot. This inability for the horses to get to speed would allow the Boer force to retreat in good order, again something that Roberts would blame them for. Haig would write about the state of the cavalry on March the 16th that, quote, I have never seen horses so beat as ours this day. They have been having only eight pounds of oats a day, and they are practically starving since we left the Mata River on February the 11th, end quote. And still, nobody would admit that it was their fault, and they never would. The fact that each side blamed the other was important, because these were the actions from which conclusions would be drawn after the war. If you believed that the cavalry's fault, it was the cavalry's fault that they were in the state that they were in, then their failure to fulfill their role on the battlefield, to get around the hind, behind the enemy and cut them off, is an indictment on the entire concept of cavalry. This was Roberts's view, and the view of many officers that he commanded. Unfortunately for the men of the cavalry, and by that I mean the men who still believed that the cavalry charge was a necessary part of the training, and they should not be just mounted infantry, the war would soon devolve into a guerrilla campaign that would rob them of any ability to show any more instances of that really good cavalry charge. Generally, for the rest of the war, there would just be some light skirmishing between small units of horse-mounted soldiers, either cavalry or mounted infantry. Most of this time was just spent patrolling, which showcased the necessity of the mounted man on the battlefield, but mostly a mounted man with a rifle, and little use for anything else. The end of the Boer War would be a long time coming, but when it did finally arrive, it would usher in another era of discussion about not just the cavalry, but all facets of the British military. One reason for this, besides the general failure of the British army to quickly win the war, was how the later stages of the war were fought. The large number of skirmishing groups that wandered around the campaigning area meant that many men came out of the war believing in certain ideas about how wars should be fought. 
A British Colonel Maud would say after the war that, quote, the hardest task of all is to convince a man who has seen a good deal of active service that the scope of his personal impressions and opportunities is not in itself sufficient to provide him with brains if he has none, or to override the experience of thousands of others who have gone before him, end quote. Many of the future World War I commanders would be in this group of men, future generals like Smith Dorian and Robert Rawlinson, who we have already met, and men like Allenby, Goh, and Bing, who have not yet made their mark on the main podcast. Another reason that the conversations were so intense after the war is that most of these men made their names fighting mostly mounted infantry actions between small groups of rifle-armed cavalry or mounted infantry on both sides. It was extremely rare that they would engage in a cavalry charge, and in many instances later in the war, even the Boers were charging more than the British horsemen. This, coupled with Roberts's belief, meant that there would be a strong movement to make all British cavalry mounted infantry after the war, just like before the war, only now they had more data points. This, even though there was not a failed cavalry charge to point to during the war. But there were many, not many examples of a good cavalry charge during the war either. Because of this, many of the arguments would revolve around how good the mounted infantry, how effective the mounted infantry were, and not necessarily how horrible the cavalry were. It was more of just, hey, they didn't do anything. That means we should go with mounted infantry. And one interesting fact that ties into what we talked about last episode is that the British Army was generally quick to discard the experiences of other armies as not indicative of the European battlefield if those experiences did not fit within the preconceived notions of the British Army. You saw this uh, when looking at the American Civil War. However, when the British Army was involved in such actions, even when the Boer War looked very little like any future European war ever would, they were quick to start drawing conclusions because it fit what they wanted. They wanted more mounted infantry, and the Boer War pointed that. Unfortunately, officers in the infantry, cavalry, and their commanders were still not all drawing the same conclusions from these actions, which is what caused all of the discussion. To understand what happened after the war, it's important to understand the power of what historians call the Roberts Ring. The Roberts Ring was a large group of British Army officers, led by General Roberts, who had all risen through the ranks together, thanks partially to the patronage of Roberts himself. This included men like Kitchener and Rawlinson, along with a slew of other generals who would become famous or infamous during the First World War. This group was extremely powerful once Roberts became commander-in-chief of the forces in 1901. Coincidentally, he would be the last commander-in-chief. His group wanted mounted infantry. No charging, no lances, no swords, just infantry on horses. The other group was now advocating for a hybrid medium cavalry armed with rifles and either swords or lances. Roberts was able to move his own men into all of the critical positions in the army, which allowed him to control things like training curriculum and procurement. Coupled with this disagreement in the armed forces was a flood of literature, both in the forms of books and in the press, criticizing the army's handling of the Boer War. One of these pieces would be The Times History of the War by Leopold Emery, which was very influential in the area of public opinion, thanks partially to the fact that it came out before the official history of the war. The conclusion of this piece was that the cavalry charge in any form was completely obsolete. 
There were, of course, publications on the other side as well. Part of the disagreement in this very public forum revolved around the state of the horses during the war. The anti-cavalry groups downplayed it, and the pro-cavalry groups emphasized it. One noticeable way in which the entire conversation had changed when compared to before the war is that the debate was no longer over getting rid of the cavalry completely. The Boer War definitely showed that men on horses was still a very important part of warfare and had a place on the battlefield outside of their scouting and screening roles. So in some ways, the argument was now more focused than before. But the lack of precise terminology, like what exactly the differences were between the medium cavalry and the mounted infantry, were a difficult distinction for the layman to comprehend, especially when it was coming from so many different authors. This resulted in a polarizing effect where the public believed that the two groups in the army were much further apart than they actually were, and this drove the groups further apart as well. This also meant that the cavalrymen became more and more defensive and more and more touchy when it came to discussions about changing their role. One of the greatest bastions of this resistance was not actually in the regular cavalry, but instead in the yeomanry. The yeoman cavalry was a volunteer cavalry force made up of generally better off men from around the country. Since they were volunteers, Roberts had less control over this group, and this meant that in 1901, when Roberts tried to take away their swords, and then tried again in 1904, he was unsuccessful. It got to the point in 1904 where the yeoman units appealed directly to the king to restore their right to carry a sword in battle, which is amazing. This would happen right around the same time as another incident, though, and it would be even more important, and would also represent the climax of the entire set of arguments about the role of cavalry on the battlefield. Roberts would try to take the lance away. It all started in 1903, when the Elgin Commission was formed to investigate the Boer War and determine why it did not go as well as it could have. Cavalry was certainly on the agenda, but it was not the only thing. On the topic of the attrition rate of the horses, the commission would say, The evidence before us confirms the view that the chief cause of the loss of horses in the war was that they were for the most part brought from distant countries submitted to a long and deteriorating sea voyage, and when landed, sent into the field without proper time to recuperate, and there put to hard and continuous work on short rations, end quote. Which is pretty much what I was saying earlier. However, when it came to drawing a conclusion about the place of cavalry on the battlefield, the commission ended on a bit of a limp note. Quote, most of the witnesses agree that in view of the great extension of the field of operations in modern warfare, an army should contain a much larger proportion of mounted men than formerly. There was, however, much diversity of opinion as to what should be the nature and armament of these mounted forces. End quote. Before the commission was even over, Roberts would issue the order in early February that would make the lance only used for escort, reviews, and parades, but not during maneuvers or during combat action. This order even came with a fancy memo from Roberts detailing the historical arguments for the removal of the weapon. It was an almost instant PR disaster for Roberts. The Times was flooded with letters from ex-officers and other former members of Lancer regiments, attempting to prove the value of the lance. These were not just no-name men from small-town Britain, either. They were local MPs and either even members of the House of Commons. 
the argument would continue for quite some time, very much in the public realm as well. French and Haig would weigh, on it, weigh in on it eventually, with French saying, quote, I do not attach so much importance to the question of sword versus lance, as some people do. So I think that the lance should be retained in the existing lancer regiments on the same principle that they are probably retained in the Russian army by the Cossacks of the Don, end quote, with the reason being morale. He just wanted, you know, if they want a lance, give them a lance. Haig would say, quote, We do not wish to deny that the firearm is a useful weapon. What Lord Roberts says about the American army in a matter of combination of fire and shock amidst our entire contention. We maintain that shock action can produce important effects, and particularly in combination with fire action, that the spear of usefulness of cavalry is increased, end quote. So basically, you know, hey, they still do shock stuff, so let's give them that weapon for that. So the attempt by Roberts to take away the lance would eventually fail due to historic reasons, morale reasons, and also just the general belief that it might still be necessary. It was a huge black eye on Roberts's tenure as commander-in-chief and would play a role in his retirement the next year. The attempt to take the lance away would be the last true attempt to remove the armed blanche from the cavalry's arsenal before the war. He would also represent the moment that a change occurred in the arguments about cavalry, as for the most part they shifted to being more productive and centered around introducing improvements and reforms that made the cavalry better at their current role instead of trying to change it. These reforms and improvements would continue right up to 1914, and we will talk about them in the next episode.